three, two, one, and welcome to another podcast. And I am so excited about today's guest. I have been such a huge fan of Debbie Phillips Donaldson. She is the editor-in-chief over at the Pet Food Industry, directing all of the content for the magazine for PetFoodIndustry.com, the e-newsletters, Pet Food Forum conferences, and related media to publications. And Debbie, you've been around since 2006. We were just talking earlier about 2007. So like your introduction to this industry must have been like, holy smokes. Yes, it was. And by the way, thank you very much for your kind words and for inviting me to be on today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I started in August of six and uh, I had people reporting to me who'd been in the industry a while and they were able to impress upon me. This is a watershed moment for the industry, for consumers. And uh, it was a, it was quite a welcome to the industry, but it was also a really great learning experience because it really brought home just how much, I mean, I'm a, I've been a pet owner my entire life and I knew how much I cared about my pets, but it really brought home just how invested people are in their pets and how much the industry is too, but also needed to learn a lot and change a lot. I think it was, um, well, I've said a watershed moment. I think it was really enlightening, eye-opening. I don't think enough people really understood how pet food is made. The fact that, you know, not every company can make their own food or make every kind of food they sell. And so, so there are places, and there still are, and they're worth the time, that um, do what's called contract manufacturing or co-late co, or, or co uh, manufacturing. And that's where a lot of the problems happened was from one large co-manufacturer in Canada, in fact. And um, and so I think it was just such an eye-opening experience for everyone, for consumers, for the, the industry, for retailers, for veterans. And, you know, that to me was the thing that still sticks with me today. I was listening to a podcast that you were doing with Alltech, where you were saying that it was so impactful that it it was probably the first time that pet owners actually started to question what the heck is in my food, you know? And for me, it was yes. definitely that, that I, I feel like there was such a shift in culture because to it, it at two, two, 2007, if you think about it, that's the dawn of social media as far as platforms like Facebook. I mean, it started in 07 and these were places where people, um, would you know where news could spread a lot quicker and then people were starting to ask more questions i know i myself was asking those questions too in 07 i had my cat that was affected uh by the melamine itself and i had no idea what was going on i don't know a lot of people around the world really had no idea what was going on it was you know it was definitely one of those traumatic experiences but from that of course i would say that the industry you know 360 from that moment very quickly. I think it really opened up a lot of eyes from a lot of people. Now, I find the, indus the industry itself is like in a very interesting space because now you have to take that and you have to marinate it and marry it with social media, which is, is, mm -hmm. is basically transforming a lot of things for a lot of people. Like my Google newsfeed is broken Debbie, with articles <laughs> like a woman sues Blue Buffalo Dog Food Company for making her canine Tucker fat and diabetic. I, when I was reading this, uh, like the Coles notes basically was a woman from New York. It was, it was a $5 million lawsuit. And the point of contention was she thought that Blue Buffalo was claiming that the food was inspired by the 
ancient wolves. And so she fed on that basis, not realizing it was so high in carbohydrates, she said. And like literally like these headlines are everywhere. Check it out. There's like Law 360, General Mills Unite sued for deceptively carb-rich dog food. I mean, what is your like, what's your take on stuff like this? Uh, um, well, to me, it's just representative of the fact that you know, we're, we're a litigious society. We, you know, we just are, I mean, people sue over lots of things. Um, and there's, I, you know, I'm not going to resort to lawyer jokes, but you know, there are some very good lawyers out there. And then there's some that are what you would call ambulance chasers or, you know, that, that glom onto something like this, like, Hey, you should sue them. And also I think in, you know, within any, within any industry, the big dogs, you know, pardon the pun, are going to get all that attention. So, you know, Blue Buffalo started several years ago. They were very, um, very marketing driven, very overt in their things. They've always got lots of attention. Um, and then when they were bought by General Mills, even more so because they just keep getting bigger. And, you know, it's the same with a, a Nestle Purina or a Mars Pet Care. I mean, they're the, they're the big targets. And so, you know, you would assume that people think, well, you know, they have deep pockets, you know, we can go, we can go after them and get something. You know, I would say that, you know, there's no one forcing someone to keep feeding their dog, you know, or overfeeding their dog. I mean, you know, a dog doesn't get obese overnight. So that's something that you would think with simple observation or regular veterinary visits, it would show that the dog is putting on weight. Um, that, you know, that's what I could say just from the very little I know. I do think, though, that, I mean, you know, there's frivolous lawsuits, but pet obesity is not at all frivolous. It's a chronic, serious problem. And I do think that the industry has some responsibility to, to try to better educate their consumers about the fact that, okay, everyone wants these premium diets. It's very meat-rich, protein-rich diets. Well, they're very dense. They pack a lot of calories. And I don't know that that's really understood by a lot of people, especially if they switch from maybe a, a less, you know, protein rich food to a higher one. And, you know, feeding instructions are really difficult to figure out. I mean, they're mandated to be on the package, but as, as our calorie counts now, but, you know, I'm not a scientist. I don't know what, how to figure out what a kilocalorie per gram means and what that means, you know, for what my cat should eat. Um, and every, every cat and dog and animal is different. And, um, you know, so, you know, it's not, it's not an easy thing and there's already so much on a pet food package that, or that has to be on a pet food package. But I mean, one of the nice things that's happening, even though it's happening very slowly is that the industry is looking at modernizing and fixing the pet food label, making it much easier for consumers to understand what's in it, what they're getting, what guarantees are behind it. And, um, hopefully that will include feeding instructions that help pet owners figure out what their pets should really be eating. Debbie, I read this, this rant piece from the managing editor over at business.com. And what she said was pretty fascinating because she said this could start, this could be the start of an extremely slippery slope for the pet food industry. So if pet owners fail to realize their own faults and find success in suing companies over their marketing strategies, where will it end? Who's next? The retailer for selling it, the veterinarian for recommending it. This is something where, I mean, personally, I feel as a, as a pet parent, when you can't take onus on creating maybe the problem yourself and having to point right. the finger, do you know what I mean? Like it almost seems like every time I open up my newsfeed, somebody's suing somebody over a, yes. a specific marketing claim where I, I feel like yeah. for those that are, you know, and I mean this in the most, in the most humblest way, 
But for those who who are kind of in the know would realize that, you know, when, when you're looking at something like this and you see a wolf, is it necessarily saying to you that this is what a wolf would be eating in the wild today? Or is this, you know, more of, you know, more of a little bit of uh, maybe some marketing and just trying to be reflective of, hey, we're trying to do the best thing here. I find that there's always those set subgroup of people that just don't get it. And the ones that don't get it are the ones that will say, well, I was relying on you to do all of this work for me. And now I feel deceived by you. And now I want to sue you. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I mean, but there there is a, you know, to play the devil's advocate and, you know, side with the consumer a little bit more. I mean, there is a, a marketing versus the science uh, dynamic that's always happening with pet food, I'm sure with human food and just, you know, all kinds of other uh, categories of products. And, you know, you know, some companies really do overdo the marketing. Um, you know, there's really no scientific proof or research whatsoever that, that they have to, you know, be fed, you know, okay, they share some, a fair amount of DNA with the wolf, but they've evolved for 10,000 years. They're not wolves. They're not many wolves and they eat differently than wolves. And so, you know, there's, there's a little bit of marketing hype and even dishonesty, I think, and, you know, really playing up you know, the, the whole paleo type diet or, you know, eat, feed your dog like it would eat in the wild. Well, you know, our dogs wouldn't eat in the wild. They would die. <laughs> I mean, or if they did, they would, they would eat, they would eat whatever they could find, right. even including their own poop, let's face it, you know? So, so I do think that, you know, it can be confusing for consumers, what's marketing and what's real. Um, I actually just wrote a new blog post about this, um, about the need for research. I know that, you know, you want to touch, touch on that. And the fact that, you know, it's very different. What, what research is available around pet nutrition is very difficult to translate to consumers. I don't understand it. I don't, I'm not a scientist. And it's really, really hard for the average consumer to understand what these ingredients mean, what the guarantees mean. There's all kinds of internet experts you know, who kind of fill that vacuum with their opinions, but they're not necessarily backed by any true knowledge or research. And, um, you know, and it's an issue. I mean, I can see where consumers would fall for some of the marking because they don't know what else to, to rely on. Well, I was talking about this when I was interviewing um, Dr. Ryan Yamka, and we were talking about the wolf. Like I was at Super Zoo this year. Debbie, that wolf is like on every single, I can't tell you how many bags where, you know, that wolf <laughs> is on like almost every single bag and the one that like floored me like if you want to talk about the wolf being everywhere ryan brought this up to me he goes there's like a, a vegan vegetarian bag of food out there today that has a giant wolf on the front of it and so it's like <laughs> i wouldn't be surprised yeah where where is the line yeah where is where is that line drawn i know there are a lot, a lot of lawsuits that are happening and ryan had also mentioned the champion lawsuit with that term biologically appropriate i think is the term that's being used and puffery claims and and things of that nature so right. you're right it, it is it's very murky out there and nutrition itself is you know one of my favorite quotes of all time is that religion, politics, and nutrition 
are the three most visceral things in the entire world, right? It's <laughs> like you start talking about yeah. food to a pet owner and either it is going to be the most positive experience you've ever had or it's going to be the polar opposite most negative experience that you've ever had. So I can yeah. definitely see why that gets challenging. We were just talking about the 2007 recall that had happened and how that was like such a traumatic and such a a culture shifting event. And then almost a decade later comes DCM. And what's that doing to the industry today? What is your take on what, what you're seeing, what's happening within the pet industry space? Well, I think you're right. You know, we talked about how the melamine recalls were such a culture shifting and it's a good, good way to put it. And so then I think when, you know, you get this announcement from FDA, you know, it's the agency that oversees how pet food is made and, and marketed in the United States, it's, and so it's important. And they come out with this alert. We see, we think we see this link between, you know, we see this, we've seen these new cases of canine dilated cardiomyopathy, and they most of them have been needing a grain from food. So we're seeing if there's a link there. And I I understand where they were coming from, but I think they didn't. I don't think they really understood what kind of impact that would have with there being just so little information, you know, they, they, they stressed that, you know, there's no link to no link established, you know, there's, we're still doing an investigation, but the headline seized on, Oh, is grain free food bad? You know, should I stop feeding my, you know, should you stop feeding your pet grain free food, et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, it really caused a whole lot of concern and panic and stuff that I think it was, was unnecessary. Um, the other, the other, thing that's difficult is as bad as the melamine recalls were, and obviously they were terrible because, you know, so many pets died or got really sick and it was awful. Um, the, the good part is that they figured out what was happening fairly quickly in a matter of weeks. You know, they were able to do the research and say, okay, this, you know, bad wheat gluten was put in this, you know, was shipped from a Chinese supplier and, um, and, you know, combined with some other ingredients and cause these, you know, these, this kind of cause kidney problems, you know, so they at least were able to identify it. Problem with what's happening now with DCM and has been since their first, you know, FDA's first alert in July of 2018 was that we still don't know anything really. I mean, there's such a complex issue and amorphous issue and that, you know, there's just no way to know, is it these particular ingredients? Is it how they interact with other ingredients? Is it genetics? Because, you know, there's, there's a lot of people in the industry now who are looking more at the whole genetic picture, um, you know, because DCM has been known to affect certain breeds. But really, if you look at the literature going back several, you know, decades, it's present in a lot of breeds, um, not necessarily prevalent. So it's it's just it's, it's just there's just so little still known, and I'm sure there's the things are farther along than they were in 2000, you know, July of 2018 but not enough for anyone to be able to come out and say anything definitive. And, you know, that just, that just causes all this anxiety and uncertainty and a lot of fear. And I don't blame, you know, a, I wouldn't blame a pet parent for who's feeding grain free food go, Oh my gosh, am I killing my cat or my dog? You know, I mean, it, it and there are some unfortunately have had their dog um, or, you know, become very ill or even died. So yeah, it's just, it's, it's just a, it's a really, um, there are parallels with the melamine thing, but there are also just vast differences. And, you know, it's unfortunate. And I don't, and, you know, I've heard that it could take 
another few years for people for anyone to finally get to the bottom of it because it is such a complex issue and there's so there's almost i wouldn't say there's too many people looking into it but i'm not sure that they're all collaborating all the different people all the different researchers looking into it so that i think could be an issue too i remember when i was speaking with uh dr greg aldrich he thought it could be five years maybe before something could come to surface as what's going on I noticed in the media, there's articles now that are out. Um, there was one that had recently been published. I think it was by uh, NBC, the title of the article. It's it's not going away. Vets still seeing cases. Now, today, yes. today, Debbie, this is really scary for a pet parent because you have on one side people saying, hey, look, you know, the data is not there yet. We're still researching. Um, we haven't been able to find a link. But then on the other side, you have you know, specific nutrition colleges, like let's just say UC Davis and Tufts as an example. And they keep the recommendations yes. is to stay away from what they term beg diets, BEG diets. And if you can't select a food based on their wasava guidelines that they talk about, to stay away from that food altogether. And, you know, I was going through some of those Wasava guidelines and, you know, one of them was, what is the research that this company has done on their food and what are their like peer reviewed studies on the foods that they have? Do you think, Debbie, that this is a huge problem for the industry, like especially for a small manufacturer? Can a small manufacturer even meet those Wasava guidelines? Because when, when I go into it, it only seems like there's a handful of companies that could even meet those recommendations? No, there aren't. I mean, it's, first of all, I, I think the big term is, I mean, it's a made up term. You know, it was made up by a group of veterinarians who I'm sure they're very well meaning and, and have good reasons for why they did, but it's not a widely known term within industry. It's not a widely respected term to be quite honest, um, because it's it seems to be taken a whole not even just one category of foods, but you know several categories of foods, and just setting them aside as well, these aren't good, which is not true, and and you know you can't you can't do that with entire categories. And my cat's walking into the picture, by the way. Um, <laughs> this is Deacon. And um, the other thing, on the, like as you mentioned for the wasabi guidelines, I mean, this is not at all realistic. There are very, very few pet food companies who can afford to do that kind of research or any research. And the ones that can afford it, you know, they do share some some of it um, and, and publish it. But a lot of it is proprietary, and they are investing millions of dollars into it. So you understand that. Um, and so, because there isn't a lot of research available, just you know, in general about pet food and pet nutrition. You know, the companies can't afford to do that. We're talking, we're talking, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars to do a study, millions maybe. And you know, to add to that problem, there are only so many ways to do research because there's only so many university programs about companion animal nutrition. There's a lot on the human food side. There's a lot in livestock production animals, but companion animal nutrition's you know not really new discipline, but it's still very small around the world, not, not only just in the United States and Canada. And so, you know, there's only so many places that companies that even do have the money to do that research can go. You know, that's, and, you know, to touch, gosh, so many great points there. Um, to touch on that, 
I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Marion uh, Nestle. And she was talking in the human realm. She wrote a book in the human realms where um, research right now is, is really, really tricky because, as you had mentioned, there's a small subset of companies that can actually afford to spend those millions and millions. And they can publish that information the way they see fit. So if it works out, great. And if it doesn't, it doesn't have to. She was telling me about nonprofit trickery that they're doing in the human world where they don't want the study to seem biased like the company. So they create these companies create a nonprofit, put the money into the nonprofit, and then fund <laughs> and then fund the study. Um, sadly, that's where we're at today, which can also make it really challenging and really tough for a consumer. It is really, really challenging as a pet parent to go through those guidelines because you're right. I don't think aside from the big three, I don't think there is a company that could meet those guidelines. And that would make, that would basically put the entire industry um, out of business. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, you mentioned the whole nonprofit, you know, that nonprofit trickery thing. I don't think the pet food industry is even at that level. I mean, there, there isn't even enough research done to go around that, that, that you know, the big companies want to release it and make, make it look non-biased. I mean, if, if a, if a Nestle or a Mars is going to release information because they, you know, they discovered, oh, we think that this nutrient, you know, that the recommendations have been wrong, you know, blah, blah. I mean, if they think it's worth it, you know, that's valuable for the industry, no, they'll just release it. They don't, they don't hide where it's coming from, you know, I mean, because it's something that the, you know, you know, that the industry needs to know that that's best for pets. And so, or if it's something that they've already to develop products, then they may release it later and say, okay, you know, this is what our research says. Um, but, you know, do we, to the larger issue of the Wasava guidelines and, and what our you know, pet parents to do and to know, there really is so little out there. And it's very few companies that can afford to, to undertake studies. And it's just a fact, you know, we don't, the, the pet food industry doesn't have the funding from the government like human food would, which, you know, you can understand to some extent, but you know, there's just, there's just not a whole lot of dollars for it. And it's a problem. So do you think Debbie grain free is considered, of course, the darling of the industry? Um, and reading well, one of your articles and some articles, there seems to be now a lag, you know, it was continuously growing. And then now all of a sudden that growth curve is starting to dip. Would you attribute that to what's going on because of DCM? Or do you think there's other factors at play? Multiple factors. So, you know, you had, um, mentioned when we were corresponding by email that, you know, what, you know, why was there grain-free boom to start with? Well, really, it was marketing. Like, I mean, there's there's no evidence showing that most dogs or cats do better on grain-free, that grains are bad. I mean, even though that's the, you know, that was the whole ploy or the whole, you know, uh, reason behind having grain-free was that, you know, that goes back to the whole, you know, eat like the wolf. They would consume a whole prey that would have grains in it. So they would eat grains. And, um, and, you know, there's, again, there's just no, there's scientific proof showing that grains are fine and none showing that they're bad for pets. Um, but, you know, it did take off and it, you know, it grew to what a good 25% of the overall market, you know, and even much higher in pet specialty. And so, you know, it's, it is, a, it was the darling. Um, I think though, even before the DCM thing hit there, it was starting, the growth was starting to level off. It was still growing, but not nearly as, you know, as exponentially as it had for several years before. And I think that's just attributable to just normal natural market cycles. You know, you have this hot new thing and a lot of people 
started releasing products. A lot of people start buying it. And then, you know, it just, it just starts to level off. Just you reach a saturation point in the market. And I think that was happening with grain free before the DCM. Now, since then though, I mean, there is data showing that, you know, within a year or so after the first, and especially after the FDA named names um, last summer, uh, you know, nosedive for some companies. And for the category overall, it's flat now compared to growing. So def- that the FDA alerts have definitely had an impact on the grain free sales. Not only were the recommendations coming from a lot of these vet colleges on to follow sort of Wasava guidelines, but something else that's really important that comes out of there is the fact to stay away from raw foods at all costs. Now, I've read in some of your articles that in the categories of food that I know, although smaller, the raw food category seems to be surging. But then you have on the polar opposite side, these colleges that are saying absolutely stay away. Do you think that there's some sort of misfiring here? What is the confusion you think that's going on here? How can this be allowed to be sold in pet stores, but yet the FDA and the FSMA saying, oh gosh, this is bad. Where's the confusion? What's your take on this? That's a good question because it's, it sort of confounds me a little bit too. Um, you you pointed out, I mean, there there's a difference between commercially raw pet food, you know, manufactured in a way that is made to be safe and nutritionally balanced and complete and balanced and, you know, all the, meeting all the laws and regulations. And then, you know, a, a a well-meaning pet owner in their um, kitchen mixing some chicken meat and potatoes and, and rice or whatever and giving that to their dog without knowing what else the dog needs. I think that's where it stems from because I think, and this is just you know conjecture based on what I've read, um, that I think a lot of veterinarians in the veterinary community in general, very general, big generalization here, I think they they equate raw food with the home, you know, home fed diets. And there is, there have been studies showing that a lot of home fed diets complete, you know, there, there actually have been some researchers who've taken a lot, you know, they've taken all these recipes that are on the internet, for example, or in books, and they've made them themselves and then tested them for, you know, what nutrients are available. And they're not meeting the guidelines for a dog or a cat, whichever one it was intended for. And so, I mean, I think that's where it stems from. The veterinary bias against raw foods, and they're not necessarily understanding that, as you said, there's commercial foods that you know where they these companies are following um, you know FDA guidelines and AFCO uh, recommendations and ingredients for you know to make sure that they're complete and balanced. So I think that's where that's disconnected. Now for the FDA, um, you know, the unfortunate thing about the Food Safety Modernization Act, although I think it was a really good thing overall and it's done a lot for the for you know for the safety of foods and pet foods. But FDA decided as part of that, that they were going to have zero tolerance for salmonella in pet food, zero, which just isn't, I mean, that's more stringent than what human food has. Human food, there's a to, there's a very low tolerance. Pet food is zero, which just isn't realistic because, you know, salmonella is everywhere in the environment. There's like 2,200 plus strains. It's everywhere. I mean, you could like, you know, have someone take a swab of your water glass right now, and there will probably be some very, very minute level of something like salmonella. I mean, it just, it's just a fact. And so, 
you know, pet food companies have to be very careful, and as they should be. I mean, they should be, they should be high, on the highest sanitation and hygiene and, qual- and safety and quality standards. But you know, I mean, if a if a FDA inspector comes in and takes a swab of, oh, in the warehouse, nowhere near open food or ingredients, and finds a speck of salmonella, they're you know they're supposed to do a recall. Even though it's never in the food, it's never anywhere near ingredients. It's never. I mean, you know, most pet food companies are set up to separate all the different steps and then raw ingredients from other processes. I mean, they have very, very strict protocols for that. Um, you know, the zero tolerance just isn't. You know, you know, a lot of times when you see more recalls, I guess it means that that the rules are working, that the regulations are working, but it's also it creates a lot of fear and, and mistrust among consumers. That's unnecessary, I think, because. It's just, you know, it's, it's not that there's anything wrong with the food at all. The other reason that the reason that FDA says that they give for zero tolerance and in, in, um, pet food is that people handle pet food. And, you know, pets themselves don't necessarily always get sick from salmonella, but it's handled by people and that people with, you know, compromised immune systems, the elderly, they, you know, they, they have gotten sick from it before. So that's where they come from. You add to that the fact that raw food, raw pet food, because it doesn't have the kind of same kind of what's called a kill step that you would have in dry pet food production or wet pet production, where you know the process itself, there's enough heat applied that it kills any kind of bacteria. You know, raw doesn't have that same kind of process, but there's a verified kill step. And so, I, you know, I think FDA has taken this stance that well, raw pet foods is going to inherently be unsafe, and they have cracked down and you know done much more inspections of raw pet foods over the last several years um or they've had the state you know feed regulators that they work with to do that and so that's why you keep getting raw pet foods being in the news with you know salmonella problems you know again most of the time it's in the environment and not in the food itself and and you know i will say you know i think that there are raw pet foods companies that there are things that you can do to raw pet food to make sure any bacteria are killed. And there's companies that are reluctant to do that because they think it may, you know, like there's a perception that that's not truly raw because it's been treated some way. Well, you, you, you know, you have to find that balance because you have to ensure it's safe. And um, it's a very long winded way of saying that, you know, there's different biases at play here. I think the, I think the veterinary community has a, a certain bias and the FDA has a certain bias. Yeah. And, and I appreciate your take on that. I was, we were talking about this earlier, how, um, I, you know, my, my Ted talk, when I got my letter from Ted that was flagged because I hadn't even said the word raw in it. I flashed, I, I remember putting a bowl of, uh, as an example, it was like primal pet food and I put a bowl in it and I was referring to a study and Ted had gotten a letter that uh, the FDA was against all raw food and veterinarians say it's completely dangerous and it's unbalanced and it's full of bacteria. And I tried to lobby with Ted and say, hey, there's commercially available raw that the the FDA, you know, would have had to approve because it's all over stores across the United States and all over the world. But they couldn't decipher the differences. And, and I've been seeing that more and more no matter what article I open up today. Um, you're right. There is a lot of media because there's so many recalls on raw food today, and there'll always be that classic paragraph at the bottom that says, you know, we spoke to a specific veterinarian and they said that raw foods are extremely dangerous. And my frustration is why does nobody differentiate commercially available balanced um, pathogen controlled raw food versus 
you know, like like you had mentioned, somebody that's whipping up something in their kitchen. Nobody's differentiating those two. Yeah, I would agree, and I I'm not sure what the answers. I I know that, um, you know, there are, there are raw pet food companies that um have done you know a lot of outreach themselves. Um, there there was a raw pet food association, although I think that has sort of morphed into something else, and I'm not sure how active it is. Um, but you know, I, I know that the that that segment of the industry is trying to do more to be more proactive about you know educating veterinarians, FDA, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, they have to educate the FDA because they have them going into their plant all the time. Um, you know, pet pet retailers, especially you know, raw is one of their biggest categories usually. You know, there's places that have like multiple freezers because they, you know, to keep up the demand from the consumer. So you can't deny that people want it and that they're willing to pay for it. And if it's if they're if it's safe food, why not? You know, I mean, it, it's it's kind of silly for, in my opinion, for you know regulators or veterinarians to try to poo-poo an entire category that consumers obviously want that, you know, is good that, you know, they think is good for their pets and they're, it's safe. Why not? It's, it's interesting, Debbie, the, I was, um, if you go into Google search and you look at how the media works, the like number one, like the number one and the number two read articles, of course, one would be DCM. Anytime there's a DCM article, heavy, heavy hits, but then also raw food. Any single time there's a raw food article out, anything referencing any type of bacteria, it is always the most heavily read article. It almost seems like if if the media wants to get a quick bump or a quick boost, you know, just write something terrible about yes. about that category. It's almost like it's almost like clickbait. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's exactly like clickbait. One last question pertaining to that. Do you think it's going to be very difficult from this point going forward for raw food companies? Anybody that wants to, you know, enter the the pet food industry with a with a great concept of raw food or do you actually let me let me rephrase that question and say do you think raw food will still be around in a decade because of all of the the negative press and the salmonella and the FDA cracking down do you think it's a it's a category that that's in trouble I don't now I don't have recent figures I you know raw it's you know pure raw food um, has not been growing and taken in taken hold to what extent it has, as much as, say, freeze-dried, for example. So, you know, I think that where companies have seen, you know, some of the issues that, that true raw pet food manufacturers are having, um, you know, they're like, okay, well, and some companies do both. They do raw and freeze-dried. But, you know, the freeze-dried seems to be have, have taken more traction in the last several years, and especially, you know, what they call kibble plus, where so you have a, a regular kibble, but it's got freeze-dried components in it. That has really taken off. I think it's leveled off somewhat. You know, it was kind of a big trend a few years ago, and I think it's starting to level off. But I think that that's a um, a way that you know consumers and, and companies can get it having more sort of the best of both worlds. Is that it's not you know freeze dried, it's not processed at the at you know the same way with the same kind of intense heat, say a dry food would be or, or canned pet food, um, but it's not raw, so you're not having you know the same kinds of safety issues. Um, it's just that it can be very expensive, you know, because it is still a small a category. There aren't as many freeze drying facilities, um, you know, where, that can make that food the right way. So, um, you know, it's a you know classic supply and demand thing, and so it's going to cost more. And that's probably one reason why it hasn't taken as hold as you know. That's one reason Kimball Plus was starting to become more. It was because, you know, they, that could be offered at a more affordable price point. 
So, you know, I think, I think there's always going to be components for raw pet food. I think it's going to keep growing. It's just, is it going to ever take hold to the, to the extent that say breed strike and just for those reasons for um, safety, convenience, you know, freeze-dried is a little bit easier and that you just you know, pour it in a bowl like you would a dry food. So, What are the popular trends that you think that pet parents are going to be and manufacturers and the industry itself as a whole? What, what do you think are going to be the popular trends of today? And what are the ones that are dying out that we're seeing that are fizzling away? I, well, I think what's becoming more popular and is going to just keep growing is the whole idea of customization and personalization. Um, you know, that's true for people too. And it's true for pets and that, you know, you already have some companies out there that's, you know, you send them certain information about your dog or cat and they send back a, a specialized diet. Now I don't think any company is yet to the point where it's like, okay, this diet was created specifically for your pet, but they have, you know, a, a group of diets a collection of, of formulations that, okay, we think this one best fits you. And I think just as the science evolves and the, the, that part of the industry grows to a point where it can be more affordable. I think you're going to get to the point where it's you get highly personalized formulations for your dog or cat, or even for yourself. You know, from a human food company. I mean, and that's just there's just such fascinating research going on right now with the genome and the microbiome, and I don't understand half of it, but for what I do, you know, get the gist of it's just really interesting what science is uncovering about all that. You know that that they can really start to point point by an individual you know, what's best for them to consume to, you know, to feed their gut best, which then in turn feeds their brain and their skin and their heart. I mean, everything else It's just, to me, it's just fascinating. And I think that's just going to keep growing. And, you know, there's companies that are having success doing it now. Um, I think the other thing that's really becoming big and starting to have uh, traction with consumers and in the industry is sustainability. Um, you know, I happen to be, you know, sort of a, you know, a little bit of a tree hugger myself. I have a daughter who majored in sustainability in college. And so, you know, she's influenced us a lot. Um, but, you know, when I, when we used to talk about it, um, write articles about it or have uh, presentations and I see your doggy, by the way, have presentations um, at our, at our pet reform conference about sustainability, you know, five, 10 years ago, you know, the reception would be, oh, ho hum, yeah, we know we're supposed to care about sustainability, but, you know, there's other more important things. I think now it's gotten to a point, you know, for businesses in general, for the world in general, that, you know, you know, climate change is a thing. It's not going away. Um, it's good business to be more sustainable. And, you know, I'm kind of mixing my messages in terms of sustainability, but in, in general, I'm talking from a very broad sense of not just the environment, but you know, the social aspects and, um, you know, the fact that, you know, okay, if you don't figure out how to, to get new employees, for example, in the pet food industry, um, you're, you know, you're not going to be able to sustain as a business because you're not going to have the people you need to, to develop and grow. Um, you know, but, but I think that consumers are really, is finally to the point where it's become such an issue for consumers that, you know, they're willing to pay to buy a product or to, or to buy from a company that stands for something and that, you know, like helping the earth or being more socially responsible. And, you know, so I think the, the things you're going to see that specifically um, the grow or, you know, the claim, you're seeing more and more claims about, you know, the sourcing of, of ingredients, how animals that are, you know, that are supplying the proteins are treated. Um, 
you know, locally grown, locally sourced, um, you know, you, where you can trace where the ingredients come from. I mean, I just think that that's starting to get traction as it's going to keep growing. And what do you see, Debbie, that's, that's sort of leaving that's over the last five to 10 years, the trends that are fading away? Um, I, there's no ones I can really point to specifically. I mean, grain-free is probably a good example. Um, and again, not only because of the whole DCM thing, but also just because it has had reached a saturation point and, and probably, you know, um, gone as far as it could go, if you will. Um, it's become so mainstream, I guess, is that it's, you know, no longer a big, a big thing. Um, you know, you are seeing more like ancient grains coming in and that's, you know, not even before you were starting to say even before the DCM thing. And now it's, uh, now they're becoming more popular. Um, I guess the only other thing I would think of is that, you know, dry pet food has been such a predominant part of the market. You know, it's really around the world in most, in most markets, it's, you know, 90% dry food or, you know, 75% dry food because of the convenience and it's easy to deliver and transport, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I mean, dry food's not going to go away, believe me. And I don't want anyone to hear, hear in the industry hear this go, what is she saying? But, um, but I just think that the, because of the alternate formats that are, be, that are growing in popularity, the fact that people are starting to say, okay, I'm trying to eat less processed food. I want my, my pet to eat less processed food. Um, I do think that you're just going to see some shifting of, of categories over the, over the years and that, you know, you're going to probably see dry, you know, slow a little bit and some of these other categories, you know, take, you know, not, not just even like freeze dry everything, but baked um, or slow cooked, you know, there's different formats that are coming to for that more and more companies are using them to make it more affordable. Um, and the one thing I didn't touch on before, and I, I do think you're going to see some of these alternative proteins, start to take hold and maybe that changes then the kinds of popular proteins that we've had um you know over the so you know the chicken and the um the uh, salmon and et cetera et cetera that again are competing with the human food base you know so insect protein i think is going to eventually take hold and and actually be approved for use in the united states um you know there's a there's you know plant-based proteins that actually can provide what an animal needs um you know, I think that they're eventually going to have some role in the, in the industry beyond what they are now. And that might, you know, have an impact on the traditional um, animal-based proteins that we've been using. So that's what I think. Do you think the term ancient grain is almost in, like, is almost staying true to the, to the wolf, <laughs> to the, like, the wolf pictures, do you think? Or do you think ancient grains mean something else? Who knows? Um, I think. I mean, I think it comes from the human. I think it comes from the human food world, and and if I understand the concept, it's that you know these are not your traditional grains that we've been using in the Western world the last couple, you know couple hundred years. You know, the corn and the rice and wheat. You're talking about ones that have been grown, you know, around the world and you know primitive a thousand years ago, um, like the quinoa and the amaranth and you know et cetera, et cetera. I think that's where it comes from. Um, but I think it's also one of those terms that's become so overused that you don't even know what it means anymore. So I want to switch to the magazine because for people that don't read okay. this, can you just talk a little bit about the pet food industry magazine and dot com? 
Sure. Um, well, as I mentioned, our, our primary audience are professionals who work for pet food companies and also the suppliers to the industry. And our what we try to do is just help those companies improve their businesses, better do their jobs. We try to focus a lot on new research, um, news. Really, the magazine anymore in this day and age is just a, a monthly representation of our content, if you will, because we're you know updating our website constantly. We have a daily newsletter. And really, I mean, we're trying to help our readers stay informed of what's going on related to pet food and the larger pet market. You know, we talked a lot about consumers having their eyes open by the melamine recalls in 2007. I mean, our readers, our, you know, our core audience, just eat up anything about what consumers think, consumer behavior, consumers' po- uh, purchasing uh, habits, what consumers, you know, are saying in surveys in terms of what they want to see in pet food or what they find overwhelming, or um, which is everything, and and just, I mean, so it's a connection. We we see ourselves as being a connection point, uh, if you will, between what we you know know about consumers and pet owners and you know what the industry needs to know to better reach them and give them the products that they they want to buy for their pets debbie i am so so humbled that uh, you took the time out of your day to sit down and to and to chat with me even though your cat is 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 like feed me right now and you've 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 put me on the top of that list i'm so excited that you know we got to chat and you gave uh, you got to give the world a, sort of a take on what's going on with the pet food industry i again am a big big fan of your articles and the magazine and i know you've got a huge responsibility over there and and for for people that are watching at home if you you know if you're not uh, sort of subscribed to those newsletters and stuff like that you are totally missing out i want to thank you so much for your time today and i hope that you can join me again to to mind jam with me on a on a future podcast i would love to and thank you very much again for inviting me i really enjoyed it and thank you for your kind words awesome there you go yay, yay. <laughs>